All right, our kids are welcome to go to class if they'd like. And welcome tonight. Glad to be with you guys tonight. This evening, some people here in person and others uh, uh, joining us online. My name is Boomer Rowland. I'm the family pastor at Rimrock Church. And uh, it's my pleasure to be with you guys tonight. And uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, of Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, tonight we're uh, visiting the, the story of Daniel out of chapter, uh, we're in Daniel chapter 3, and uh, in that whole book, so much of it, uh, Daniel is a part of it, and he's teaching and, uh, and, and writing and narrating that story, and yet uh, in chapter 3 tonight, uh, Daniel's missing. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Daniel chapter 3. And it's this classic story of conflict, of um, conviction, and, and of courage. And uh, I think it's a message, the, the, the takeaway tonight I think is so uh, applicable to right where we are uh, in our life. Regardless of what um, crisis we might be in the middle of or what situations or what seasons uh, we might be in the middle of. Uh, if, if we haven't, if you're not already facing hard times, uh, hard times are coming. That's a part of the life that we're living here on earth. And so the, uh, the application uh, from tonight's message is, um, is good for every person. I want to, I'm just going to kind of narrate through the story uh, tonight, and uh, parts of it I'm going to read uh, directly from Scripture. Part of it I'm going to tell. It's such a great story to tell um, that I really enjoy that, and so hopefully that will help us uh, connect. But before we jump right into the beginning of chapter 3, let me give you a little bit of the background and a little bit of the history. I want to introduce some of the characters in our story that we're going to be talking about tonight. That book of Daniel, as you might guess, uh, was written by Daniel, right? And so he just slapped his name right on it. That's good. Um, and so, uh, and in the beginning of the book of Daniel, right there in chapter one, we're introduced um, to what's happening. Um, this uh, guy, this king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, has come in and conquered uh, Jerusalem and uh, that whole southern kingdom of uh, of Judah, and he's carried off not only some of the plunder from the the temple of God, and he's destroyed the temple. He's carried off the um, some of the artifacts and some of the worship items, and and that that whole thing uh, valuable. Um, articles that he takes away and carries back to Babylon, but also um, he brings with him uh, the best and the brightest, the cream of the crop of, um, of the nation of Israel, the, the brightest young men uh, he brings back to, his, um, to the kingdom there in Babylon, and he begins training them and getting them ready for service uh, in the kingdom, and, and in some cases, in fact, in Daniel's case, right in the palace uh, with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 4, we see a description about the men 
that uh, he has uh, taken into exile. This is how he's described, how these young men are described in verse 4. It says, uh, he took young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And then in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, um, Daniel introduces us to four of these uh, young men who were taken. Not the only young men who were taken, but he introduces us to four of them that are going to show up through the book. In verse 6, this is what it says. Among those who were chosen uh, were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official in Babylon gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, the name Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, some of those names are going to sound really familiar to you. And it's a, a, there's a little foreshadowing there to what chapter 3 has in store for us. But King Nebuchadnezzar has ruled uh, over... Um, Babylon now, or Babylon's the, the key city, but he's ruled there um, for, he will rule for 43 years, but our story starts in year two of his reign. So he's uh, new, and uh, in the battle to break away from the Assyrians, uh, as the Babylonians um, uh, gained independence from Assyria, pretty much all of Babylon was destroyed. And so really over those 43 years that Nebuchadnezzar reigned, he was also rebuilding the city. And it was just interesting as you fast forward or as you read further than what we're going to look at tonight in the book of um, Daniel. But in chapter 4, we see this moment where Nebuchadnezzar is taking pride in everything that he's built. And so that fact that Nebuchadnezzar was rebuilding Babylon uh, really after his own design, right? Really kind of gives us a, a clue as to um, where his um, arrogance may have come from. In chapter 2, we find out that Daniel uh, kind of makes a name for himself. He distinguishes himself by being able to interpret one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams when nobody else, none of the other officials in his kingdom could do it. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, it's an interesting, you read chapter 2, but Nebuchadnezzar puts the challenge to all of his wisest guys says, not only do I want the interpretation of my dream, but I also want you to tell me what my dream was. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't really trust these guys that he had around him because they could feed a good line. Oh yeah, you tell us the dream, we'll make up an interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to know what that dream meant. Uh, even uh, under penalty of death, uh, if they couldn't come up with an answer. And when uh, Daniel finds out about that, he and his uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they gather together, they begin praying and asking God to give them an understanding of what the king's dream is. And God gives that understanding to Daniel. Uh, and Daniel goes kind of as the representative of the group, and he tells the king, and he gains favor in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, and Daniel is promoted really to overseeing all of the um, 
administration of the kingdom. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also promoted to um, overseeing different regions of the kingdom. And that is how we come then to chapter 3. Um, and some historians believe that there's been a 20 years from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3. And so now King Nebuchadnezzar has been um, kind of thinking about this dream that he had in chapter 2. And in the midst of this dream, or in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is uh, pictured as a, uh, the head made out of gold of a statue. And in the interpretation it was, this is your kingdom, and there's nobody more powerful than you, but another kingdom's coming. And then another after that, and then another after that. And so we now see Nebuchadnezzar's kind of lived with this dream and this image, I think, in his head of saying, I'm a head of gold, baby, you know, and then his pride and his arrogance, I think, just begins to grow over 20 years to where we see now in chapter three, this is how it opens. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. That's 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the administrators, the treasurers, the judges, and the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And so the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now, Daniel the, the book of Daniel is an interesting thing because he used lots of lists like this. And then he repeats them a hundred times. So I'm not sure if his editor had given him a minimum word um, kind of assignment. I'm not sure how that works. But in this list is essentially different levels of government officials throughout the kingdom. That's what all of those names and all of those titles mean. And so... Um, King Nebuchadnezzar now has called all of the officials in the kingdom to come to the dedication of this, uh, this image, this idol, this uh, statue that he's made. And, uh, and then in verse 4, we pick it up. Then the herald proclaimed loudly, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear, here's another list, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But what are the instructions? When the band plays, you bow and start worshiping this image that's set up. Well, I'll tell you what, any good story has got conflict. And they now, Daniel now has set the stage for the conflict, right? And so as uh, the band strikes up, everyone, all of these officials that have gathered, they bow and they start worshiping this image in honor of the king, right? In honor of the king. All but three guys. Three guys don't bow. Any guesses? It's not Daniel. But, but the other three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. Now, I want to back up a little bit. 20 years earlier, these three guys had gotten promoted 
into uh, leadership. They're outsiders, right? They've been brought in. They're foreigners. And they get brought in, and then they get promoted. And I'm just wondering, that the, the Bible doesn't tell us this. It's conjecture. But I'm just wondering if there wasn't a little bit of jealousy among the others who had been there longer and got passed over for the promotion. And now they see this opportunity. Boy, they've been laying in wait. Maybe 20 years they've been looking for their opportunity. And now an opportunity presents itself to... Um, get these guys in trouble and maybe themselves be able to move into that corner office with the really good view, right? And so here it is. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, here's what it says. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Basically, they went to King Nebuchadnezzar and they said, Hey, King, didn't you just pass this law that said that any time that the band starts playing, we're all to stop what we're doing and bow down and worship this image that you've set up in your honor? And the king says, That's right. And they say, Well, have we got news for you? Listen closely. And they tell them, These three guys that you promoted... They don't respect you. They're not listening to you. They don't care about your gods. In verse 13, it says, Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Isn't it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear... The sound of the horn and the flute, the zither, the lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music. If you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, well, Nebuchadnezzar's got a big head. It's not made out of gold in this instance. But... He is uh, rather confident that nobody can save these guys if he gives the order to kill them. Now, it's at this point that I begin to kind of ask myself a couple of questions. And one of them is, why were there only three guys that didn't bow? There were lots of exiles that were brought from Israel. A lot of Jewish people that were brought, and they served in different places, and I'm sure they weren't all um, in leadership roles. But why is it that, that the people that were brought, why is it that there were only three people who didn't bow to this idol? And I had never really read Daniel chapter 3 considering the history of Israel. But for years and years and years, all the way back to really to the book of Judges, all the way through, Israel struggled and was, uh, they dealt with the temptation to worship foreign gods, to worship idols. Right there, even in their own country, in their own, um, in their own homes and in their own cities, they struggled with worshiping idols. And I just, I, as I read and as I studied Daniel 3 this time, I began to wonder if it wasn't that they, a, a large segment of the population was comfortable with the sin of idol worship. 
Like, that, the idol that they were worshiping may not have been their god of choice, their idol of choice. But the sin itself seems to have been comfortable to where they said, well, I mean, you know, the band's playing. I, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And so then they would worship. But not these three guys. Not these three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had decided in their heart, they had purposed in their hearts that they would not do this thing. Daniel uses similar language in chapter 1, and it really is the, the, the first instance that we get that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were fully sold out to obeying God. They purposed in their hearts not to eat the food that was provided by the king. But instead, they stayed kosher. They, they followed the dietary laws that God had given them. And so I think it's interesting um, that only these three guys would bow. And then that leads me to another question that I've been wondering about, which is why three and where was Daniel? Like in chapter three, Daniel doesn't show up at all. And for some reason, as Daniel's writing, he doesn't give us an explanation about where he is. And it leads some people to wonder, well, did Daniel bow? Is that why he wasn't pulled in? There weren't four guys that were standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think based on what we read in chapter 1 and based on what we read in the rest of the book of Daniel, I think it's... Um, I don't think it's accurate to say that Daniel bowed. I think more likely Daniel was away from the kingdom on official business. He wasn't there, but he hears about that story when he comes back and he records it uh, as he's writing down this history um, that the Holy Spirit's guided him to write. And so I want you to pay really close attention now to this next section. In Daniel chapter 3, we pick up the story in verse 16. And I, really, I want to read it from the New Living Translation because I love the wording that they use here. And this is what it says. Now, the, the king has given these guys a warning. He said, now, this was the law, but I'm going to give you a second chance. And, uh, and if you choose to bow and to worship when the band strikes up, then we're all good. And here was the response. In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego re replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then God whom we serve is able to save us, and he will rescue us from your power, o your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now really, these three guys are making a statement of faith. They're making a statement of faith, but they're also making a statement about their understanding of who God is. They've, they have seen God over and over and over, God be faithful to his people. It, they, they've read the stories, they've memorized the stories of Israel's history and their relationship with God, and they're looking at that characteristic that God has displayed over and over and over again of being uh, present with his people, being a, a protector, being 
faithful, being trustworthy. And essentially, these three men are saying, we have seen God's goodness in the past, and we have read of God protecting his people, and we are trusting that God is the same today and will do the same for us now. I really think that this is the key aspect of this chapter. This is, this idea is so critical for us today. There are so many times when we're in the heat of a crisis, and the only thing that we can see is our fear, or our pain, or our discomfort, or our questioning. It's so difficult for us to clearly see God, and to see God's purpose in the situation we find ourselves in. And yet it's in these moments that our history with God is what we lean on. Knowing God is good and remembering that God is trustworthy means that we can trust Him today. I want to say it again. Knowing God is good and remembering that God is trustworthy means that we can trust Him today. Last Sunday, we got a chance to hear uh, the, uh, the story of Julie Broberg and just a, a section of her walk with the Lord and the way that her history with God is, has prepared her for the season that she's walking in now. And we're going to watch this uh, Julie tell her story just a little bit here. Good morning, church. My name is Julie Broberg, and I get to share with you this morning about God's goodness and his faithfulness in my life. Last fall, I started praying real earnestly that I would want God more than I wanted his blessings, and that I would pursue his presence more than I pursued comfort or um, good circumstances in my life. And I had no idea how he was going to answer that prayer in 2020. Starting in January, I attended a class on Wednesday nights at Rimrock called Practices of Grace. And the very first Wednesday night, we had a homework assignment. And we were handed 30 small strips of paper, each with a name or a characteristic of God printed on them. And our assignment was to take them home, read over them, pray over them, and choose two that we thought God was promising to be for us in our lives at that, at that time. So I thought, well, that's a good idea. And I tucked them away in my Bible, and I went home. And 36 hours later, on Friday morning, I was on my knees in my living room with all these pieces of paper spread out on the floor in front of me, praying over them, crying over them, uh, pleading with God to be all of them for me because I knew I needed him to be all of them because I was waiting to hear the results of a biopsy that I'd had the day before. And so as I prayed, you know, be my comforter, be my overcomer, be my redeemer, be my courage, my physician, my healer, he was. He he became those things for me, and this peace, this warmth, just came over me. And with it came a, a knowing, it's all I can really say, 
describe it as. Um, so when I got the call, I wasn't surprised. I knew that I had breast, breast cancer. Um, it's still a little hard to say. <laughs> um, as I was continued to pray, the Holy Spirit reminded me of a Bible study that I had done several years ago with Rimrock. It was a, on the book of Daniel, and it was with um, a group of women. It was a Beth Moore study, and I remember Beth Moore saying that when we walk through a trial or a fire, God always redeems us through it, and he does it in one of three ways. He either redeems us from it and takes it away, he redeems us through it and walks by our side, or he takes us home. I already knew he wasn't going to choose to redeem me from it because I had my diagnosis. So either he was going to walk me through it and all the treatment course that came with it, or he was going to take me home. And immediately my mind went to my idols. You know, will I still worship God and praise you and trust you? if it's not a good prognosis. You know, will I still believe you are good? And he took me to his word right away, and particularly Psalm 63 and Daniel chapter 3. The whole Psalm 63 was a balm to my heart, but particularly the, the following verses, um, starting in verse 2. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, and with singing on my mouth will I praise you. And the passage out of Daniel 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king had told them, if you bow down to my image, this idol that I've made, you'll be safe. You'll be fine. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fire. And um, he said, then what God can save you then? And their response to him is found in verse 16. And it says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I realized then that I wasn't going to serve those gods anymore of safety and security. I wanted to serve the true God and, and that his presence was more important than any of those other things. And that I would trust him no matter where the journey took me. The journey took me to more tests, multiple doctor's visits with multiple doctors, surgery, radiation treatments, and then uh, hormone blocker treatments. And he was there and continues to be there every step of the way. And just like God, being who he is, the blessings came as well. And a few of the things that I want to share with you are um, the day I found out about the diagnosis, my husband was homesick, on his, flat on his back. Anybody know Donovan? He doesn't call in sick, ever. <laughs> but I wasn't alone the day I found out. Um, the church family surrounded me in an amazing way. I had prayer warriors 
that were lifting me up, my kids up, Donovan, um, particularly when I had to tell my kids. I had to call three of them. I couldn't be with them when I told them, and it was very difficult, and I got through it because of those prayers. I had people clean my house. I had people bring in me food, uh, soup, because I caught the flu that Donovan had. <laughs> I had people sending me songs of encouragement, and it was just amazing. I had a great surgeon. Surgery was 10 days after my diagnosis. I got in quickly. My radiation was finished before this COVID thing became our new reality. And I still remember the day we celebrated when I found out I didn't need to have chemo. And I realized through it that this world doesn't give us any guarantees. My cancer can come back. I could get COVID. Somebody I love could get sick. We could die. But God gives us guarantees. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our forever, our eternal life has already started as believers in Christ. And nothing can alter that. It's not some future thing when we get to heaven. It's, it's the Holy Spirit working here and now. And um, one of my favorite quotes is by Oswald Chambers, and um, I'm going to read it because I want to make sure that I get it right. It says, eternal life, kingdom life, is a way of living that can face anything it has to face without wavering. I hope that encourages you as much as it encourages me, and I thank you for letting me share, and I can't wait to worship with you all face to face very soon. It's the history that we have with God that allows us to trust him in the moments of our crisis, in the moments when fear and uncertainty stand right in our way. But it's the history that we have with God, knowing his character, knowing who he is, that he never changes, that allows us to make those hard decisions, to choose to step forward and trust, lean into who God is in that relationship. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar didn't like the answer. And so in verse 24, uh, the king follows through on his, uh, on his promise, on his threat, and he throws these three men fully clothed into the furnace. In fact, the, the soldiers that threw them in, this furnace was so hot that they died in the process. And yet, the king was in for a surprise. In verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they said, Certainly, your majesty. And he said, But look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the, of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. God had showed up in a big way. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they answered the king, they did not know how it was going to turn out. They said, the God that we serve can rescue us, and he will rescue us, but even if he doesn't. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. But they trusted in their history with God, and they stood firm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they pinned their hopes on the God that they knew. And they considered their situation and they chose to put their faith in a God who never changes rather than in a king who was unpredictable. And their choice, their choice echoes what the Apostle Paul will say hundreds of years later when he says, For me to live is Christ but to die is gain. Not only did God choose to rescue those three guys from the fire, but they were then promoted. As you finish the chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar promotes these men. But the truth is, on that day, even if God hadn't rescued them, they were going to be promoted. And as we stand in the midst of the crisis, whether that's uh, whatever that is for us today, or whatever that is for us tomorrow, or the, or the week, or the month, or the year to come, when we stand in the midst of the crisis, it's the history that we have with a God who doesn't change that allows us then to lean into Him, to trust Him, and to say, no matter what comes, I'm standing with you. I want to encourage you today. If you don't have a history with the living God, that your history can start today. That as we read not only God's word and we see the way that God has been faithful through, uh, through the years as he's walked with people, but to read the stories of other men and women of faith, who have leaned into God and how God continues to be trustworthy. Allow that history to be the thing that allows us to choose to stand with God in the midst of our crisis, in the midst of those hard seasons that we face. Your history with that living God can start today. It can start today. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, uh, today, God, I'm asking that for those who don't know you and haven't walked with you, those, those people who have, they don't have a history with you, Father, I pray that their history could begin today. Father, that they would see you clearly, they would hear the call to submit their lives to you, to lean into you, to trust you, not based on what I say, but, but, but based on your, your track record. Father, there are some who have trusted you in the past and yet now have taken their eyes off of you and are walking and living in their own in their own power, under their own wisdom. And Father, I pray that you would draw their hearts back to you. And Father, there are some of us
Father, who just continue to see you faithful in our lives every day. And I, I pray, Father, that you would give us a boldness and a courage that we would be able, that we would choose to share the hope that we have in Christ with the people that you put in front of us. Father, thank you for these three men. Thank you for their faithfulness, their example. Father, thank you for loving us.